0: Psalm 42. We've said before, the Psalms are kind of the heart of the Bible in two ways. One, they're right in the middle. And so if you take your Bible and just open it right in the middle, you're likely to fall into the Psalms. And so find your way to Psalm 42. They're the heart of the Bible in a second sense, in that the Psalms give us uh, helpful ways to to pray to God, helpful ways to give words to uh, maybe different uh, emotions, different times, different seasons of our life, the psalms uh, give us language where, where we may not have language to express how we really feel, and that is certainly true when it comes to uh, this now the the third kind of third genre of psalm that we are looking at in the series the laments we 've looked already at. Hymns. We looked uh, last week at songs of thanksgiving, and this week we'll look at the lament psalms, uh, in particular Psalm 42 and 43. The laments in Scripture among the psalms are these psalms that are born out of disorienting seasons, seasons of life where the psalmist maybe is questioning his faith or is in a state of deep despair or depression. These psalms allow we, the readers of them, the freedom to cry aloud and to ask God, where are you? Why is this happening? What is going on? Psalm 42 and 43, which uh, most scholars believe is one psalm that, that somewhere got split in half. But Psalm 42 and 43 is a psalm for dark days and dark seasons. But which leads we, the readers, to ultimately rest in the presence of the Lord who is faithful even if he is unseen. Think for a moment about the last time you were in a Sunday morning church service that felt sort of sad or melancholy. Truth be told, in the West, in evangelicalism, I think we seem to struggle with that. Most Sundays, we're, we're generally upbeat and encouraged and encouraging. We're excited about worship on Sunday mornings. There are good many churches that turn down the lights out there, turn up the lights up here and uh, play really loud, exciting, upbeat music. And everyone is supposed to feel like everything is great. Isn't it awesome to be in church today? It's not that we're trying to manufacture a kind of happiness necessarily but maybe that often in churches we feel like like church is not the place for me to be sad church is not the place for me to be depressed i ought not be around other followers of christ and feel bad about anything i should be happy here even if i have to fake it now it's not that this morning we're intentionally trying to be sad or to put off a darker tone in our worship but I've noticed in my life and and even in my ministry, a tendency among believers to feel like they have to look and act like they've got it all together. A tendency among believers on Sunday morning to feel like everything's okay. And even if it's not, I have to show everyone that it's okay. Social media doesn't help us with that at all. Many of us who spend, may spend time on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. All we see these glimpses, these snapshots of people as they wish their life would be. Most of the time, Facebook is not a very depressing place to be. Unless you're the one who's depressed and you see how apparently happy everyone else is. Friends, it's okay. If in your life today, everything is not okay. Listen, it's okay if you're sad today. It's okay if you're hurting or grieving today. It's okay if you're depressed this morning. You're in the right place. The lament Psalms, when they arrive in the church, that feels like they have to put on a show, put on a happy face The lament psalms just blow right through that happy-go-lucky facade to reveal the pain and the hurt and the sorrow, even the the depression that so many of us feel so much, so much more often than, than we may let on. The laments, as we'll see today, friends, are God's word to us to help us to know how as Christians we can express our pain and despair in ways that build our faith. The laments are helpful to us as a genre, as a type of, of Hebrew poetry, laments can be recognized by several different things. They're most often recognizable by their tone. They're dark, they're sad, they're heavy. They they may seem kind of out of place in the Bible to you. If you've not been well acquainted with the laments, you may uh, be reading along in the Psalms and you get to like Psalm 42, 43 or Psalm 51 or Psalm 88. And you go, this is this. I don't think I'm reading this right. This is Heavy. This is disorienting. That's what they're supposed to do. That word lament itself in the English language means the passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And that's what the lament psalms are passionate expressions of grief and sorrow. One scholar, Trimper Longman, says that psalmists, uh, uh, notes that psalmists uh, may lament several different things. So as you come across lament psalms, you may find the psalmist lamenting his own thought or his own actions, maybe lamenting his own personal sins like David does in Psalm 51. You may find lamenting the actions of others against them, uh, lamenting the, the action of enemies who are oppressing the psalmist maybe even lamenting frustration uh, over God himself, his apparent absence in the moment, his lack of action on behalf of the one who is crying out to him for help. The same scholar, Trumper Longman notes seven different elements that are often uh, present in the laments. And not all of these are always present, but often they are. And usually, uh, uh, usually more than one. There's often an invocation, a a call to those who may be reading or participating in the psalm. There would be a cry out to God for help. A list of complaints that the psalmist has. Maybe a confession of sin or defense of the psalmist's innocence. There may be a curse on the enemies of the psalmist. These are what we call imprecatory psalms. There may be often a restatement or an affirmation of the psalmist's confidence in God's response that will be coming, even if it has not come yet. And then very often the lament psalms end with praise or blessing of God. I would encourage you this week to read some laments in the psalms. You have a list of them there in your worship guide. Uh, if you want to write some of these down, if you, if you don't have a worship guide, you want to write these down. These are Psalm 12, 17, Psalm 22, 42 and 43, where we'll be this morning, Psalm 54, 69. And once you have a good handle on those and how they often end positively, then you can read Psalm 88, which is a lament that ends in a very, uh, a, a very dark place, a very different place than many of the other laments. This November will mark three years, I'm surprised the time has gone by so quickly, uh, three years since a, a pretty devastating event in, um, in our family's life, particularly my my wife's. Uh, in 2015, our church employed for the summer as one of our children's uh, interns, a young woman by the name of Esther Jankerson. Esther uh, very quickly became a part of uh, our family, close friend to my wife, uh, almost like a, an older sister to my daughters, and um, and a kid that I loved having around but couldn't wait for her to leave at the end of the day. She spent the whole summer with us. I, I mean, almost literally every waking moment, she was either at our house or with our family, and, and we grew very close to her. My, my wife did especially, and over the next year through phone conversations and texts and emails, my, my wife Nikki was discipling Esther. She was away to college, and they would they would talk uh, frequently uh, about things going on in Esther's life, and, and she would often send Nikki a text message that said, Hey, Nikki, I have a question. That's how it always started. And, uh, and she would ask the question, which were never easy questions. Uh, and, and Nikki just enjoyed growing close to her uh, in that in that relationship. Then in November of 2016... Uh, I, I still remember the phone call that my, my wife got, and uh, I remember being in the house and just hearing Nikki on the phone saying, Wait, what? That, that can't, What? Are you serious? That phone call was, I think, from Esther's mom to let Nikki know that Esther had been uh, tragically killed in a car accident while she was uh, uh, driving uh, back to. Uh, the campus where she was going to school in Texas, and over the next several weeks, we were just just devastated. My, my wife, especially, this loss and this person who become part of our family, and now she's just she's just gone, just gone. And Nikki had been, I think, talking and texting with her even just a few days before. It was it was almost surreal how how quickly it all seemed to. End, and and we knew there was going to be a funeral down in Daddle, New Mexico and in a few weeks. But, but in the time in between when Nikki got that phone call and when we knew the funeral was, we were just kind of in a, a hard place spiritually of knowing that God's good, of, of, of seeing all the great things he was doing in Esther's life. And then at the same time, now being um, on the end of receiving this news that Esther was gone. And all the work that God was doing in her life was just, it was stopped right there. We found ourselves questioning, God, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why, why have you taken this wonderful person and just totally removed her, not, not just from our life, but from her family's life and her friends and all those that knew her, all the good things you were doing in your life, and, and now God, just gone. Just gone. What are you doing? And seeing my wife hurting through this whole process. Friends, you've, you've been there before, having lost loved ones. And not knowing how to minister to my wife's heart. Not knowing the words to say. I opened the Bible to the Psalms and to Psalm 42. And through tears and squeaking voices, we read and, and made our prayer, Psalm 42 43, will you stand with me if you're comfortably able as we read God's word? The psalmist laments. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God now vindicate me O God and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me for you are the God in whom I take refuge why have you rejected me why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God. Why are you cast down O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. These laments, these songs of disorientation teach us as believers, as followers of God, several things. I think at least three that we learn from Psalm 42 and 43 this morning. The first is this. The laments teach us to cry out to God. The laments teach us to cry out to God. Verses 1 and 2 are an interesting verse. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh, God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? As you read verse one, you may be thinking of the old song as a deer pants uh, for the water. So my soul longeth after thee. That, that song is a little more upbeat in tone than the psalm. In reality, the psalm could be in its tone not, not any more different than that song. This is not a picture of a, it's not an image of a deer serenely seeking after a fresh flowing stream in a, in a, in a nice green lush forest. This isn't Bambi frolicking alongside his mother, but it's one of a deer dying for thirst in a drought ridden desert. It's a bad image. It's a dark image. It's a painful image. The thirst of the psalmist for God is likewise not a it's not a euphemism for how much he loves the presence of the Lord. The psalmist is not saying, Oh, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, oh God. This isn't Romeo outside the window of Juliet talking about how much he loves her. This is this is like Bambi next to his mother that's just been shot by a hunter. It's dark. It's sad, it's it's it hurts. This is how deeply the psalmist hurts at the sense of absence he feels from God. I'm like a deer in the desert with nothing to drink. And God, you are what I need. You're the only thing that can quench my thirst, and I'm in this desert. And so he asks, when shall I come and appear before God? It's a question of pleading for a hearing. He wants God to hear his case. He wants God to pay attention to him. He feels like like God is so far off. He's not even... Paying attention to the psalmist. Clearly the psalmist feels, feels bereft of God. Ignored by him. Verse 3 is a concise statement about the deepness of the psalmist's depression. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. With some exaggeration here. The psalmist notes that in his grieving, the only thing he has had to fill his belly and to sustain him are his tears. Have you been there, friend? You can't eat, you can't drink, a you, 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 uh, place of grief and mourning in life such that the only thing you can do is, is cry. That's the, that's the only expression you have. That's where the psalmist is. And meanwhile, the whole of the people are taunting him, saying, where is your God? Where is this God that you so desire? Where is this God that continues to ignore you? Where is he? You keep crying out. He's not there. You tell him how thirsty you are. He doesn't give you anything to drink. You tell him how lonely and depressed you are. And he doesn't show up. Where is your God? And this is what the psalmist is dealing with the whole time. It's not clear whether... Those that are taunting the psalmist are Gentile non-believers or, or whether they may be fellow Israelites who have, who have somehow forsaken the psalmist in his grief. That's not clear. And either way, I think there's application to our lives there that, that those who taunt and maybe make our grief worse are not always necessarily those who are against us, but sometimes those who are closest to us. In verse 4, the psalmist remembers his days leading the people to worship. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. So he's in the darkest of places and all he can think about were the good times. And by comparison, the the time he's in right now feels so much worse because of how good things used to be. I remember as I'm pouring out my soul to God, how good things were, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. I would lead the people with glad shouts and songs of praise. All of us keeping festival before the Lord. It was so great. And now this. We get to verse 5, which along with verse 11 of chapter 42 and verse 5 of Psalm 43, uh, compose a consistent refrain throughout the song, uh, uh, almost like a chorus, if you will. Lines that are repeated throughout uh, the song. These three identical refrains are what pull this whole psalm together. It's it's, it's the the thread that stitches the psalm together. The refrain is consistent in its call to the psalmist. It's the same every time. But there's increasing force uh, uh, of confidence in the heart of the psalmist as the psalm goes on. But here's the first refrain. In the darkest of places, in the darkest of moments, the psalmist stops and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hear this first Refrain, the refrain the first time would lead the psalmist and would lead us, the reader, to reflect rightly on the good days of worshiping the Lord with the congregation. That's what the psalmist is remembering in this dark day. Those were good days for the psalmist and for us. We who may be in a, a place of depression, of grief, of mourning in our life. We can look at the in the past at the times where God has been good, where he has been faithful. We can remember those things and remember that they were good days. And in those days, God was worthy of our praise. And even now in the depression of the moment, these memories of better days Invoke in the psalmist and and ought to in us also a longing, a desire, a hunger to worship God again one day. Hope in God, he says, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. I may, I will again praise him. Maybe not today. I may not be able to rejoice in the Lord today because it hurts so much. I may not be able to feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel today because it hurts so much. But I intend to one day. As soon as I am able, the psalmist is saying, I will praise him. The laments teach us, friends, to cry out to God. So do like the psalmist has done. In your pain, cry out to him. Turn to the only one who can understand your pain. That is the truth of this passage, that God understands your pain. So cry out to him for help. Not not only can God handle your cry for help, but he himself knows suffering like the suffering that you are going through. He himself has experienced the the greatest amount of suffering anyone can ever experience in Jesus Christ, his son. When you cry out to God from the depths of your depression, from, from the darkness of your grief and mourning, know that God who hears you also understands. As Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 tell us, We do not have a high priest who is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. So then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear friend, if you are depressed, if you are sad, when you are grieving, when you are mourning, when when your whole life feels dark and black like you are in, in, in what a poet has called the dark night of the soul and you have nowhere else to go, cry out to God because he understands your pain. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. The Lament Psalms teach us to do that. The Lament Psalms teach us also that as we're crying out to God in our prayer to recognize within ourselves conflicting emotions, to recognize within ourselves that, that in our grief we may just be all over the place. Verses uh, the end of verse, uh, second half of verse 5 and 6 through verse uh, 11. Communicate the kind of internal waffling, the, the back and forth, the flip-flopping of the heart that takes place in the soul of the believer. In the soul of this, the, the soul of this psalmist who is genuinely hurt, genuinely depressed, genuinely oppressed by others. Certainly he asks himself the question in that first refrain, why are you cast down my soul? In a way of of almost asking himself that rhetorically, why are you cast down? You know God is good, you worshipped in the past, so why are you sad today? But yet he jumps back in and the end of verse, uh, excuse me, middle of verse 6, he says, but my soul is cast down within me. I know it may not be right or I know it may not be appropriate, but it is. It just, it is what it is. My, My soul hurts. Even in asking that question, why are you cast down my soul? He receives no encouraging answer or correction yet. He's still depressed. The psalmist is still hurting. And so in his depression, he again remembers the better days of God's faithfulness. He says in verse 6, in the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar, these landmarks of physical landmarks of God's faithfulness in different places and different times to the people of Israel and even in in his own life. Here in verse 7, the psalmist seems to place the chaos of his current situation fully within the responsibility of the Lord. Look what verse 7 says. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. This is almost to say, Lord, I'm drowning. I'm drowning in chaos. I'm drowning in brokenness. I'm drowning in grief. And I'm drowning in the breakers and waves that you have put upon me. Here's an important point to note. That though God may be responsible for the chaos in the psalmist's life. That God may be the one who is superintending the psalmist's suffering. He is not culpable. He's not guilty of wrongdoing in the psalmist's life. Though God is sovereign, he is not guilty. Though God is sovereign, he is not evil. There is notice in the psalmist's voice. No accusation of evil doing toward God on his part. This teaches us first that. God is sovereign over every circumstance and situation of our lives. Even the really disconcerting, even the really apparently chaotic, even the very depressing times of our life. God is still sovereign. He's not surprised by it. He's not taken off guard by your suffering. He's not unable to not only relate to you, but but to answer you in, in your suffering. God is sovereign over every circumstance and situation of our lives. Nothing happens outside of his divine superintendence. And this verse teaches a second that what may appear to be evil in our lives, what what may appear to be horrible and destroying will never surpass the righteous purposes of God. Though the psalmist may feel like he is drowning, the Lord is intending to use this in his life for the Lord's purposes. The psalmist may say, God, you have done this to me. But he will not say, how dare you do this to me? You see the difference? It is fair to say, God, you have done this. You have brought this about in my life. God, you have allowed these things to come upon me and they hurt and I'm grieving and I'm mourning, but I won't question your goodness. I won't question that you are infinitely and eternally good and that your purposes are better than my plans for my life. I won't question that. I know that you've done this. I'm not sure where you are in all of this, but I won't question that you are good. See the resolute nature of the psalmist here who can say, God, you have done this to me, but I will not question your goodness. Verses 8 and 10 continue the internal conflict that the psalmist faces. He knows that the Lord's steadfast love is with him at all times. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. It's a Hebrew word, hesed. He commands his hesed toward me. And at night, his song is with me. The psalmist knows that the Lord has not left him. The Lord has not ignored him. That while He may feel like he's drowning in grief and depression. He knows that God is still present, even though he may not be able to see or to comprehend where God is. And still, even still, knowing that God is present, the psalmist still prays, but Why have you forgotten me? Do you see? Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I know you're there, I know your steadfast love is there all the time, but I feel forgotten. Do you see how confused, see how conflicted the psalmist is? Have you ever been there? The complaint of God's forgetfulness is based upon the many in the life of the psalmist who continue to provoke and to insult him with questions about the presence of God. And so in his conflicted state, crying out to God, we get to verse 11, the second refrain of this psalm. The same as the first in 42 verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Just as a first refrain, this one calls the psalmist to question the depression of his soul and its validity. I think there's a change in the tone of the question. He, he's almost, even with conflicting feelings, he knows that God has been good in the past and yet he feels like he's drowning. He, he's going and he, he, looking at himself, he's he's Become introspective and he's asking of himself. So why are you depressed? If you know God causes his faithful love. Commands his faithful love to you day after day. And you know of his faithfulness in the past. Even though you feel like you're drowning in grief today. Why are you sad? The answer to the psalmist's question. What's the grounding? What's the foundation for my depression? Why am I this way? The answer is in the the verses above. The psalmist is oppressed and he's insulted by those who are unfaithful. But still, verse 11 calls the psalmist and calls us not to the insults of the unfaithful, not even to the the internal crisis of faith at the present moment, but calls uh, the attention of the psalmist and to we who are reading it to a faithful God. Who never fails to bring praise in the hearts of his people. The psalmist will praise the Lord again. I shall again praise him. It's just very hard to do it today. I know that I will. I'm confident that I will. I can begin to see light at the end of the tunnel. I know that the good things behind me. The, the good things that God has done are are not just what not just the memory of those things that will carry me through, but it 's the steadfast love of god that i 've seen in years past that will carry me through, and one day I will, I will be out and in the light and able to praise him again and so the psalmist, even in his depression, is already beginning to prepare himself to praise God when relief is found. know this this morning, friends that just as the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with us. So also know that God's love is unchanging and unfading. So anchor your hurting soul to it. When you feel like, all of, like, when, when you feel like a ship tossed at sea in all the chaos of your life, the grief, the mourning, the depression, the anger, whatever it is that has beset your soul. When you feel like you're tossed all around and you don't know what you have to hold on to, know that God's love for you is unchanging and unfading. So anchor your hurting soul to God. Anchor your hurting soul to his love. Understand this, friends, that God will not love you, cannot love you any more than he already does, nor can he love you any less because of who you are. But God loves you perfectly intimately infinitely through his son jesus christ and everyone who knows christ as savior knows the fullness of god's love every single day Amen. let me say this also the world is prone to telling us to follow our heart and go where your heart leads you dear friends of the psalmist followed the wisdom of the world today he would have ended up in a very dark, perhaps deadly state if he'd listened to his heart. His heart is conflicted. His heart condemns him. His heart tells him there is no hope. And yet he knows that, uh, that, that the Lord commands his steadfast love day by day. That the Lord is, is faithful and loyal to those that he loves and is called to himself by his own grace. And so the psalmist doesn't anchor his life in the changing condition of his heart. He anchors his life, he anchors his soul to the unchanging love of God. There is a hymn that is very popular within the church and has remained popular for almost about 150 years now. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, written by a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. Some of you may know the story of how he came to Write this hymn. In November of 1873, Horatio Spafford, a Chicago businessman, sent his wife and his four children uh, on a ship across the Atlantic uh, so that they could get away and vacation for a time uh, as a family. He had to stay back in Chicago for a little while because some unexpected business things came up, and so he sent his family in ahead, intending to, in the next few days, get on another ship and then meet them there in Europe. On the way, the ship on which they were traveling struck a Scottish vessel, a a heavy vessel, and the ship on which his wife and four children were traveling sank in just 12 minutes. His wife, Anna, was the only one among all of his family that survived. Four of his children were lost at sea. And when she was, uh, she and others were rescued by other ships, uh, they were taken to Wales. And once she got to Wales, she sent a a wire back to Chicago saying simply, saved alone, what shall I do? Four days later, Horatio Spafford boarded a ship to Britain to meet his wife, who was the only survivor of this uh, terrible, uh, terrible tragedy. And as the ship on which he was traveling across the Atlantic approached the spot where, his, uh, where the previous ship sank and where his children uh, sank to their death, the captain of the ship on which Horatio Spafford was traveling called Horatio to the cabin and he said, uh, he said Mr. Spafford, we're now, we're now approaching the place at which uh, your wife and children's boat sank. And it was there around that area that the song... It is well with my soul, welled up in the heart of Horatio Spafford. And he wrote it there in the spot where his children drowned in the middle of the ocean on his way to meet his grieving wife. Horatio Spafford wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast cost me, caused me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, understand what I believe Horatio Spafford did, that God's love is unchanging and unfading. And in darkest times, your most conflicting moments, you can anchor your hurting soul to him. And he will bring you through. The laments teach us to cry out to God. They teach us to recognize conflicting feelings within our soul. And then finally, the laments teach us to, at the end of it all, and and, and even through it all, place confidence in God. The laments teach us in dark times of life to place our confidence in God. Moving to Psalm 43, the second half of the Psalm verses one and two, the Psalmist says, vindicate me, O God, defend my cause against an ungodly people. At this point, the situation of the Psalmist is not much improved. He's still in a dark place. People are still taunting him. People are still giving a hard time about his faith and the God that he's crying out to who apparently doesn't seem to be answering. In fact, now his cry to God is to bring justice and to vindicate his life, to vindicate his faith in the face of unjust and deceitful people. Come to my defense, God, is what the psalmist is saying. Come to my defense against those same people who have been asking me all along, where is your God? This cry of vindication goes out to God in whom the psalmist is, is still finding his refuge, but who feels rejected by the silence of God. He says in verse 2, You are the God in whom I take refuge, statement of confidence, but then a question. So why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Even though he knows God is present, even though he knows God is his refuge, he's still trying to figure out why all of this is going on. Then there's a shift in verses 3 and 4, a very marked shift. These verses are entirely different in tone. They're, They're not Dark and heavy and melancholy like the verses before, but rather they they, they are lifted. They are lighter. They are more confident and optimistic. The psalmist writes, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. Oh, God, my God. These verses are quite different. The psalmist does not tell us why. Why? But his tone has changed from one of sorrow and grief to one of confidence in the Lord. His, his prayer shifts from the conflicted, where are you, God? Why is this happening to the confidence of, God, send out your light and send out your truth. They will lead me. They'll lead me to your holy hill to lead the people in worship again. This, these verses are to say, I see your redemption coming, God. And I'm confident in you, even though I'm crushed in spirit. And we get to the third refrain. The, the the final chorus, repeated line of the psalm. And now in light of verses 3 and 4, I think it takes on a slightly different tone. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in, within, in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. Now for the final time, the psalmist asks himself why he is so dejected. Why is he so depressed? The reasons are still legitimate. He's oppressed by the attacks and the insults of the enemy, right? But because of the tone of confidence in his cry to God in verses 1 through 4, this final refrain carries a tone of confidence for us as well. We, the reader, are reminded of Psalm 30, verse 5, where the psalmist says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. There's a lifting of the psalmist's head. There's a lifting of his heart to see the rejoicing that is on the horizon. To see the cause of joy, which is God himself, right? Verse verse 4, excuse me, I'll go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. The psalmist finds his joy even in darkest moments in the person of God himself, in the presence of God himself, in the worship of God himself. There is joy there. So, dear Christian, as we learn from Psalm 42 and 43, place your confidence in God, lament your sorrow with your head lifted high. Sounds like a paradox, sounds like a contradiction in terms, but you can cry out to God with your head lifted high because Christ is the hope of your salvation. You can cry out to God in deepest, darkest moments in times of most questioning and and most grief and pain in your life because Christ is the hope of your salvation. For every one of us who has turned from our sin to place our faith in Jesus as Lord who died uh, in our place to take the penalty for our sin was raised from the dead to make us right with God to restore our our heart to a right relationship with our creator. We who hope in Christ that way know that as dark as today may be, there is hope and there is joy in Christ. There is confidence in the salvation we know that God has promised to everyone who calls upon his name. The psalm ends with the certainty of the Lord's salvation. And it ends with the joy that comes with seeing the the promises and purposes of God made full. This final refrain comes with all the assurance of God's truly good superintendence of all things. Hope in God, says the psalmist. I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. And so we, when we are lamenting. Learning to place our confidence in Christ, the hope of our salvation, placing our confidence in the, in the, in the person of God himself, we can then in times of lamenting, look at everything, all the chaos, all the disorder, all the pain in our lives today. And we can say with Joseph from Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, who was sold into slavery in Egypt by his own brothers, we can say, as for you, you meant this for evil against me, but God who superintends all things meant it for good to bring about today that many people should be be kept alive as they are today. I don't know why this is happening. It seems evil, but I know God's purposes are good and he will do what he intends to do in our lamented, lamenting with confidence in God. We can say with Solomon in his old age in Ecclesiastes chapter eight, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know it will be well with those who fear God because they will fear before him. We can take hope in the words of Jesus, who in Mark chapter 10 said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. We can in our lamenting with confidence placed in God glory with Paul, who says in Romans chapter five, not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can, in our time of deepest depression, with confidence in God, rejoice with James, who tells the church in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When you have cause to think that there's no hope in your life right now, anchor your soul to God, anchor your soul to Christ, who is your hope, who is your salvation. And say with John, as he he recounts to us in Revelation 21, If you are broken and crushed in soul today, put your hope and confidence in God. Cry out to him. Recognize all the conflicting feelings that you have and then anchor your hope. Anchor your soul to God who will one day raise you, dear friend, who trust in Christ. Raise you from the dead to live with him forever in a world no longer tainted by sin and death and pain and suffering and sorrow. Place your hope in God. Lament with the psalmists. Cry out to God. But anchor your soul in him and take your confidence there. Dear friend, the, the laments often start dark and they don't always end very bright. But they, they, they set us on the right course to placing our hope and our faith continually in Jesus day by day. There is hope in Christ. There's a new day coming. Lament your sorrow to God. Take confidence in Jesus, his son. Let's pray.